Now, if you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We'll just start, we'll start by just reading verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Now, in the last half of chapter 1, Paul has told out in brief summary of all the corruption and ignorance and God-hating rebellion that is witnessed in the Gentile nations. He says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And they do not glorify God. They do not praise God as God. They do not even give him thanks. It is elsewhere written that in him we live, move, and have our being. We exist because God caused us to exist. We have air to breathe. We have strength to move around. Because he gives it. And yet it is not in the nature of man to recognize these th- that these things to which he is so accustomed, that they are continual gifts from the God of creation. Because they didn't glorify God as they should, they made up gods of their own. Gods that look like mortal man or beasts of the field. They degraded their bodies with sexual immorality. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, how could they exchange the truth of God for a lie if they never had the truth of God? Well, he had said... For what may be known of God is evident to them through the creation, even his eternal power and Godhead. And we see this going on in our day. I suppose it's gone on in every day in one form or another. But you look out at this world in the, um, and, you know, with the instruments and stuff that scientists have now, we look deep into our galaxy and even beyond. I remember seeing a picture that came from the Hubble telescope. And uh, when I first looked, I said, wow, that's a lot of stars. And then I read the caption. That was galaxies, each containing billions of stars. But everywhere we look, so far as we can tell, and I realize we're very limited in what we can tell about things out there, there isn't life anywhere but here. But there's this vast array in the heavens, and then here on earth we look, and there are, I was thinking about this yesterday, the simplest form of life 
is so complex, it's hard to believe it exists. Our bodies, and we're supposedly the, you know, the, the top of the food chain, <laughs> the most advanced of the creatures upon this earth in terms of intelligence, which doesn't say much for the intelligence on the earth if we're the top of the heap. But you think of what it takes for a human body to operate. There's not just the stay alive aspects. There's an immune system. And I was thinking of this in in regard to those who would propose that evolution is the way we got here. And when I begin to think of the complexity, it's just impossible that a series of accidents resulted in us. I think to myself, when the first life came into the world, it had to come into the world with an immune system already in place, or it wouldn't have lasted very long. Not only that, a means, a mechanism of reproduction was necessary from the very beginning, or there had just been one, it lived out its life, and that would have been the end of life. Here we are. Such a complex system. Various parts, all of it arising, and here's a marvelous thing to think of. When we were conceived within our mother's womb, we were one cell, and yet within that cell was DNA, a single molecule, a very complex molecule. And yet that molecule contained all the information necessary to put you together, to divide up into cells, for those cells to differentiate into various organs and things. And you began to form, and this process actually continued for 20 to 25 years. Because even though you were born after about nine months of that, you know, you came into this world so everybody else could see you, but still you're going through the process of growing and differentiating, you know, different cells doing this and that, and you mature. And it's not until you're about 20 or 25 that that whole process is complete. And all that's going on from the instructions hidden in that single molecule. It's amazing. How can there not be a God that made that happen? You know, the more that science finds out, the less they think there's a need for God to explain things. I look at it the other way around. The more that they find out, the more I see the need to recognize there has to be a God such as the scriptures describe God for this to exist. Stephen Hawking, one of the great physicists of our generation, he died here two or three years ago, but he said, when it comes to the problem of existence, 
He says, the real question is, why did anything bother to exist at all? He recognized that. The big question, why? Why does anything exist? Because there is a self-existing God who made it exist. So we see from the creation his eternal power and Godhead. And these people that Paul was talking about, they saw it too. But instead of recognizing God as he is, they made up gods that they could understand, gods that they could control. And because they wouldn't keep the knowledge of God in their minds and hearts, God gave them up or gave them over to various things. He allowed them to further degrade their bodies through homosexuality, both men and women. And you look here at verse 28 of Romans chapter 1. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, when it talks about giving people over, this was not simply people who fell into sin. It said he gave them over, which meant <clears throat> that they were helpless, in a sense, against uh, what they desired to do. And what's more, on the one hand, their conscience would tell them what they were doing is wrong. And yet, they overrode their conscience and said, no, it's all right. We live in a day when those horrible things, and I say in a day, and here in, in our nation, <clears throat> some of the most horrible things are being celebrated as good and right and praiseworthy. They've become, this is verse 29, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's a pretty heavy list. That's a pretty thorough condemnation of the Gentile nations. And I imagine he in particular had Rome in mind. This is the book of Romans. And he traveled. I don't know that he ever went outside the Roman Empire. Such people would appear judgment worthy by just about everyone. 
But Paul's not done. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now, I think that uh, in all likelihood, he was turning his attention to the Jews who utterly despised the Gentiles and counted them especially unclean. They treated these uh, Gentiles with contempt. If you look over here at verse 17, Paul makes it kind of explicit. Now he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, he says here, if you pass judgment on somebody, and this isn't merely saying that they did something wrong. I mean, if a person murdered, let's say a person commits murder, it's not judgment on your part to say, that was wrong. They shouldn't have done that. Because that's true. If somebody tells a lie, they shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. They sinned at that point. That's not the judgment he's talking about. He's talking about judging a person, not actions. He's talking about saying, well, these people, well, they're, they're filthy because they do these things. They're, they're cut off from God. It's obviously they don't, know, they don't know God. They wouldn't act that way. And all the while thinking that you're doing better than they are. And because you're doing better, God has favor on you, or at least it's some kind of proof that he has had favor on you. And what Paul says to anyone who thinks that way, he says, in whatever point you judge others, you're judging yourself because you do the same things. Now, you may not do exactly the same thing as the person whom you judge, because quite often, we're smart enough not to pass judgment on others who are guilty of the same kind of sins we are. That's why you hear people say things like, well, at least I never 
murdered anyone, you know. Find the one sin that you've never given outward expression to, and people will hide behind that as though the fact they didn't do that, why, that's their righteousness, and God ought to, you know, be more pleased with them than he would be, say, someone who did commit murder. But it also shows this, and of course, the people that judge like this, they would rightly be called legalists. And here's the thing about legalists. They are most often guilty of the very things they condemn the most heartily. Because they see their sin in other people. And they can't stand accepting their own condemnation. So they condemn others for it to make themselves look righteous. And not only this, I think that Paul is also demonstrating what our Lord said, that even if you have not outwardly expressed your sinfulness, these things are in your heart. He said that if a man looks on a woman with lust, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, if you hate a man, if you hate a person, you're already guilty of murder in your heart. Now, it's good if you don't give outward expression to these things, but you have no more right to boast of yourselves over the one who, well, those things do come out in their lives. We cannot look at them and say they're worse people than we are. Because they're not worse than we are. Even if they've acted worse than we have. Everything we see others do. And maybe rightly condemn their actions. We see others do. Even if we've never outwardly done it. It's in here. And there's only one thing that keeps it from coming out. The riches of God's kindness toward us. There are not many man-made phrases which are worthy of continual quoting. But here is one. You look at someone obviously overwhelmed, caught up in and trapped by the grossest of sin. And you say, meaning it honestly, there but for the grace of God go I. Do you really believe that? I could never do that. Really? (laughs) Really? If you've never done you think of the most despicable person you can imagine. Someone, the thought of them, and I'm not talking about a, a particular person in your life, though you may have someone in, your, in mind, but I mean, you know, someone who's do, who would do something so horrible, it just makes you sick. And realize that as to his nature, 
He is no different than you. The only difference is God gave him over to that and let it happen. And God protected you and didn't let you do that. He restrained you by some means or another. He kept you back from doing that, maybe by giving you some good parents that trained you otherwise and and strengthened the conscience he already put in you so that you don't think, you know, you say, I I, I shouldn't do that and I won't. I, I would feel too guilty, so I won't do that. It could be that he just never allowed for that particular direction in you to have to show up at the same time there was opportunity. Sometimes, you know, the only reason that we didn't commit a particular sin is that when we wanted to, there just wasn't an opportunity for it. And then when there was opportunity, God didn't let that particular passion arise within you. Or in some cases, God just providentially kept you from doing it. The hymn writer, William Cooper, wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. He wrote the hymn that begins, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. A man who believed the gospel, and yet he suffered from what is today called depression and anxiety, suffered from it horribly, and decided to take his own life. And so he hired what we would call a cab, you know, and he wanted to, told that cab to take him over, I think it was the River Thames over in London, I'm not sure, but to a nearby river, and he's going to throw himself in and drown himself. Very foggy night. And the guy started driving, and he drove and drove, and then he stopped. And lo and behold, they were right back where they started. The driver had gotten lost in the fog and taken Mr. Cooper back, right back around to his own house. And Mr. Cooper got out of the carriage, realizing the Lord had providentially held him back from killing himself. We hear of people who take their own lives. I always, I think it's one of the saddest things to get in such a state of mind that you think death would be worse than the life you have. How dark an existence like that must be. But you hear somebody committing suicide. Some people, I say you, I'm just, that's one of those general yous. It includes me and everybody else in the world. We hear about someone committed suicide. We might think, weak, can't take it. Some hold suicide to be the unpardonable sin. If you commit suicide, surely you went to hell. When our Lord Jesus Christ said, all manner of sin is forgiven, except the sin of blaspheming the Spirit, and that's not committing suicide. But you know one of the things about the sin of suicide? 
Nobody alive has done it. <laughs> it's one of those sins easy to condemn because so long as you're alive in this world, you're not guilty of it. Well, William Cooper was guilty of it. The Lord just didn't let him succeed at it. I used to get tickled at the fact that in our law there is a distinction made between murder and attempted murder. And I'm saying, oh, so whether you get um, life in prison or the death penalty depends on how good a shot you are. If you try to kill somebody, you're a murderer. And if you just attempt it and don't succeed, it just means you're bad at it. That's all. You're the same person. And you and I, and this is so easy to say, but not really easy to believe. Every one of us in our flesh is a violent murderer. See, I'd never do that. I bet you there was a time David said he'd never do that. I bet you Cain thought he'd never kill his brother. I bet you when Judas began following the Lord, he was excited with what he heard. And it never entered his mind that he'd be a betrayer and a murderer. There's only one real remedy for a judgmental spirit. The greatest power in silencing a condemning attitude is to constantly keep in mind the riches of God's kindness toward us. It says here in our translation... Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Now that word kindness, we really don't have a single English word that will cover all the meaning of the Greek word behind it. Because the Greek word combines the concept of usefulness and kindness. Sometimes this is translated goodness. But even that doesn't cover it. But the idea here is that this kindness, as our translation says, is God doing things that are useful for us and that flow from his own good and kind heart. Now, the way our translation handles it, it says... Kindness, tolerance, and patience. As though, you know, it's, it's speaking of the riches of these three things. But I look, looked it up, and it's, it's a bit odd grammatically, but I think what Paul means when it, about this is, do you have contempt for the riches of his kindness? That is his tolerance and patience with you. What more useful thing could we get from God? When you consider what we are, what we do, what more useful, kind, and good thing could God demonstrate toward us 
than tolerance and patience. We're rather intolerant and rather impatient. And all it takes, normally speaking, to prove that is for somebody to cut us off in traffic. Or somebody just be impolite to us. And our immediate reaction, normally speaking, in traffic we may lay on the horn and scowl. Some would make rude gestures. But whatever it is, it's an expression of anger, contempt, and wrath. And all they did was cut us off in traffic. That's all. They got in our way. And brethren, every day you and I commit the very kind of acts we condemn in others. We may do it more subtly, but we do it. But God deals with us in kindness rather than wrath. In chapter 1, he gave that list of horrible things that the people did. And we read that God gave them over to this. And God gave them over to that. And yet, you and I are guilty of the same things. And God never gave us over to it. He never said, all right, have it your way. Go to hell if that's what you're intent on doing. Do you know that's the only reason you're saved? It's the only reason. God did not initially show you his grace and he is not continually pouring out his grace on you because you have done better than other people in this world. He sees you and realizes that in your nature you're just like the children of wrath. There is no difference. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 3. For there is no difference for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That Probably that statement, for there is no difference, is the hardest one for proud religious man to swallow. Because he, he comes into this world, or she comes into this world, and she's well trained in her home on how to act. And they went to church every Sunday, and everybody's pleased with them. Everybody thinks they're good Christian, pats them on the back. They're always working in the church. And that never occurs to them there's no difference between them and the vilest person you can think of. To judge others as less worthy than ourselves is to show contempt for the kindness of God. Because he says this, the kindness of God was not, to, was not designed and given to us 
in order that we could inflate ourselves with pride that God's not going to send us to hell and that we're good Christians and this, that, and the other that religious man likes to boast in. He said, it wasn't for that. God's kindness, rightly understood, leads a person to repentance. Oh, brethren, when we think of how good God is to us every single day, every moment, He, with an eye that cannot look upon iniquity with any kind of favor, he looks on us and we're full of iniquity. And he tolerates it. We despise liars and then we lie. God puts up with it. Puts up with it out of us while he sends others to hell for the same thing. I wrote a letter to one of our, or email to one of our brother preachers here a week or so ago. I appreciated what he had in his bulletin. Wanted to let him know because it had been such an encouragement to me. And I just told him, given my temperament and, and, and the background of the things I was taught as I was growing up in religion, just always afraid that I'm finally going to sin one time too many. And like they used to tell me, God's going to put you on the shelf. That's it. That's how he judges, you know, Christians, particularly, you know, ministers. Okay, you've sinned somebody. God's just going to put you on the shelf. You're just going to be useless the rest of your life. And it's, it's a thought that's constantly going on in my mind. Because I know full well all the other stuff that goes on in my mind and the things I've done which are quite worthy not only of God setting me on the shelf, but doing all my, well, worthy of death, says the scriptures. And this brother wrote back to me, and he, I'd mentioned that he, he didn't have the same temperament as me, so he might not be as subject to the same level of discouragement as me. And he said, well, we may not have the same temperament. We may not be the same in temperament, but we're the same in sin. I live in constant wonder that God does not expose me for who I am and humiliate me out of the ministry. Do you ever feel like that? I love you all and I take it you love me because you keep showing up. You at least love what I preach. And I keep thinking if they only knew, if they only knew. And maybe you think the same thing. But here's the wonder of it all. God does know. And yet here we are, worshiping him. He put up with me all week long. And put me back in the pulpit again to preach to you. Am I going to despise that kindness on his part by standing up here and preaching a message, condemning this person and that person and weary you with a message about how our culture is going to hell in a handbasket and all that kind of stuff, knowing full well 
the only difference between those that I would be condemning and me is the kindness of God. He puts up with me. He doesn't put up with them. He's patient with me. He's holding back his wrath for a time, even against the children of wrath. But it's not a matter of patience on his part. It's a matter of waiting to the right time. You say, how does that kindness show itself? The wicked men of this world suppress the truth by their wickedness. So did we. But God overcame our suppression of the truth and made it shine into our hearts with such a brightness we could no longer deny it. And we received it with joy. Why? That useful, good kindness from God. We look at the world, and no matter how much we learn, in the scientific sense of the word learn, we are amazed at what God has wrought, what God has made and created. Why? Because he didn't let us be deceived. They didn't glorify him as God. And we don't either. Not continuously. Certainly not at the level he deserves. And yet they'll go to hell for it. And God will put up with it out of us. They didn't give him thanks. And neither do we. We may pray the words, thanks. But are we really thankful in heart on a continuous basis? Are we, do we really recognize that everything we have has come to us out of the kindness of God's heart? We haven't earned a bit of it. We look at others whose lives are not so blessed as ours, and well, if they'd work more, we always find some way to blame poverty on the poor. And sometimes, yeah, they're, well, it says you reap what you sow, and they didn't bother sowing, so it shouldn't be surprised they don't reap. But why is it that we go out and sow? We work with our hands, and we get you know, a, a harvest from our labors. Why is it we do that while others don't? Well, you know, we're, we're just a better character. No, we're not of better character. God worked in us to will and do of his good pleasure. Say, well, I... <clears throat> I've never been guilty of that sexual impurity like Hollywood does all the time. I remember how when I was a kid, the preachers were always preaching against Hollywood. 
Well, yeah, it seems kind of concentrated there, doesn't it? (laughs) What you see coming from Hollywood is just what's in the heart of every person. But God's not restraining them from it. And he's restraining you and me. Well, I could never be a homosexual. Hmm? Don't boast. Don't boast. May be the only reason. Well, it is the only reason. You are not carried away like they are. Is that God didn't allow it to happen. Said they did they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Evidently you do think it's worthwhile. Because you put some while into it. You get up, you get yourself dressed, you drive whatever distance is necessary, you come here, you listen, you, you sing along with the songs, you pray along with the prayers, you listen to the preaching, you take it to heart through the week. From time to time, it'll come to your mind. You'll meditate on the... Why do you do that? The riches of his kindness. We could go through that whole list of things at the end of chapter 1. And we would have to say the only reason that that does not characterize the way I live is because God, in the riches of his kindness, didn't let me do some of that. And what I did, he put up with it. He laid it to the charge of his son and punished it there instead of me. That I am no more worthy of God's good treatment than are those that are spoken of there in Romans chapter 1. No better, no more worthy of God's good treatment than the ones spoken of in chapter 2 who self-righteously judge others. All the kindness of God. One of the little before... um, a meal prayers that I was taught as a kid. And probably most of you have heard it. God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. By his hand we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. And, of course, we learn to say it. And when you're kids, you know, I remember one time, well, there was another one that my dad had taught me, but he called on me to say the blessing, and I said it just as fast as I could. And I got done, I said, I got done in three seconds. He said, say it again. (laughs) And you know, a lot of times that's what our prayers are. We're We're just blurting out a string of words. But God is great and he's good to us. And there's no reason for him to be good to us except that he's good. And you and I in this world are among a category of people 
that have no claim to anything good from God, who have no right to hold ourselves as any better than other people, and yet we have been given from God everything of which the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. Now, will we despise that? I like that, the riches of his kindness. You know, some people give out a little bit of charity once in a while. And they'll talk all about it, you know, so everybody knows they did it. They got a million dollars, and they give a hundred dollars to someone, and they think they've really done something. Riches, divine riches. How rich is God? (laughs) Riches of kindness on people like you and me. Oh, God, preserve us from ever thinking that we're better than someone else, because we're not. And God, preserve us from that because what that reveals is we're showing contempt for the kindness that God gave us. And I don't know about you, but nothing irritates me more than someone showing contempt for something kind I gave them or did for them or something I gave to them. That's just in our nature, isn't it? We do something nice for somebody. And they don't say thank you. They don't act like it's any big thing. They may even act insulted. God pours out his kindness on us day after day after day. And we don't thank him as we ought for it. We don't appreciate it. But he keeps giving his kindness. We sang that song at the beginning, How Much I Owe. I think when we get to glory and see just the level of the riches of his kindness toward us really was, we will be stunned. When we see him as he is and with the true unhindered wisdom from God, See what we were. We will be in everlasting wonder that God let us take a single breath. May the Lord God be glorified.